Hi everyone and welcome to Data Society's speaker series. Uh, today we have with us uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick, who is an expert in data privacy, GDPR, and has worked as a chief privacy officer. Uh, Sheila is with us. Uh, her camera is facing some problems, but she is with us. And um, so just if this is your first time with Data Society, um, we are basically a student-led society that is trying to make data science more accessible to people in all, all across all disciplines uh, that, you know, we want to show that data science isn't just a computer science, uh, uh, you know, a computer science thing. Uh, so uh, would you mind uh, telling us a bit about yourself? Sure, I'm happy to, and I have to apologize to everyone. Um, I actually want to hear, my camera has decided it doesn't like this technique, so it will not let me, uh, it won't let you see me. Um, I have been a global data privacy expert uh, for almost 40 years, but as I like to tell people, I started at the age of five. Um, I was uh, involved in data privacy science in, in, as I mentioned, 160 countries well before it was sort of the cool thing to be into, way before any technology companies or law firms or consultancies actually cared about privacy. Um, I work with regulators around the world as well as multinational companies. Um, in all industries. So I work in public and private sector, uh, high tech, retail, uh, government, um, uh, everything, uh, healthcare, financial services, you name it. Um, I do quite a bit of public speaking on the subject. I'm incredibly passionate about data privacy. Thank you very much, Sheila. Uh, great introduction. Uh, I think we have a lot of experience to gain from uh, this talk today. Um, just uh, so I've noticed that you're a member of the board of a company called Trota. Uh, so would you mind just telling us what the company does? What's the goal? What's the mission? Sure, I'm happy to. I'm very excited about being on the board of Trota. Trota is what's considered a um, an Irish trust company. So it's basically um, the purpose of Trota is to develop a true independent de-identification capability that allows organizations to process data without using personal data. And it's basically, Trotta was the brainchild, if I can use that word, of, of MasterCard. Um, MasterCard obviously having a tremendous number of customers that they work with and they do quite a bit of data analytics. And release of GDPR in 2018, MasterCard realized very quickly that their ability to use personal data to do analytics and modeling would be substantially limited and in some ways prohibited. And so they came up with the idea of, of Tirada. The purpose of it being an Irish independent company or Irish trust company is that it, it is independent from MasterCard. Um, one of the other investors is IBM. Uh, we use IBM's platform. Um, but again, because it is an independent company, uh, it doesn't take direction. It is not led by MasterCard or by IBM, uh, but it's uh, MasterCard is the first customer and uh, has been incredibly supportive of what we're doing. And it's one of the first technologies I've actually gotten excited about when it comes to privacy, because as, as many of you have heard me say in the past, the reason why we have more extensive privacy laws is because of technology. Not, not that I'm anti-technology, but technology has allowed for um, 
in many ways, the misuse of personal data. And so when Trata approached me about joining their board, I got very excited about what they do and saw very quickly that they take privacy very seriously. That's, uh, that's super interesting. And I'll definitely be reading more about uh, Trata. Um, Sam, do you wanna go ahead with the next question there? Sure. So, um, Sheila, could you explain to us a little bit about why GDPR, why D, why GDPR is important in your opinion? Certainly. I mean, GDPR um, has, in many ways, raised the level of awareness around the importance of privacy. And what it really did was the introduction of GDPR moved us from thinking about um, the old what I'd call processing of data and management of data to really thinking about the importance of data and putting ownership of personal data back into the hands of the individuals. So it certainly has moved privacy from a very old environment into the digital world. Uh, it certainly has raised the awareness around the world about the importance of protecting personal information. And I think in many ways, the way I view GDPR is that it has forced organizations that traditionally wouldn't care about privacy to at least have to think about it at a, at a more granular level. And it's also opened up many people's eyes around the fact that privacy and security are not the same thing. And oftentimes, even now, I hear a lot of organizations talk about security and about how they, they protect data, but they don't talk about privacy or they they sort of lump it all together. And they're definitely not the same thing. And, and I can certainly expand on that as much as you like or as much as you don't want me to. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And how does data protection differ across different regions around the world? Do you think things like Brexit are, are an issue when it comes to data protection, big political yeah. changes? Sure. So a couple of questions in there. So let me start with the first one. Um, the first one is how has um, data protection laws changed around the world? Well, as I mentioned earlier, GDPR has certainly been an influencer in terms of influencing changes around the world. And we are seeing probably the greatest growth when it comes to the expansion of data laws in the Asia Pacific region, believe it or not. And the world's most restrictive data protection law is not the GDPR. Um, it's not the German national law. And I love to tell my German friends that they get a little bristly, um, but I do it in good spirit. It's actually, actually South Korea. South Korea has the most restrictive law in the world. Uh, the penalties include uh, mandatory imprisonment for up to five years for violation of privacy rights. So we're seeing that a lot of countries in Asia Pacific are in some ways mirroring GDPR and seeing some of the, the problems or some of the ambiguities in GDPR, and they're addressing those in their own laws. So Japan implemented their new law last year, and they actually obtained the adequacy rating from the EU uh, it, because it, it, the, the Japanese law provides um, the details and the requirements required under GDPR and exceeds it. So what was interesting is that Japan actually assessed 
the GDPR to see whether or not that was adequate. And that was a little different for the EU. They aren't used to being assessed. Um, we're seeing changes in the ANZ region. So Australia and New Zealand are looking at, at substantial changes. Singapore's made changes, um, Thailand, uh, Philippines, China, China's new Data Protection Act. They had their cybersecurity law went into effect in 2018. They have just introduced their new Data Protection Act that replicates many of the components of GDPR, but adds more requirements such as data localization, uh, requiring permission of the Chinese government to move data outside of the country. Um, so we're seeing changes there. We're seeing a tremendous influence in Latin America uh, by the GDPR. So Brazil, Argentina, uh, Costa Rica, Panama have implemented new laws, Mexico, Canada is certainly moving now up to North America. Canada is certainly um, looking at GDPR and mirroring and replicating what it's doing. U.S., not so much. Um, people talk about the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, saying it's the new GDPR. Um, um, I, I live in California. I'm rarely here. Um, I'm only here because of COVID. I'm normally uh, traveling the world. But uh, CCPA is is nothing compared to, to GDPR and has a lot of problems associated with it. So I wouldn't look at it as one of the more restrictive. So, there, so we are seeing a tremendous influence, even the way GDPR is being implemented in the member states within the EU is very different. So um, some of the countries have taken a more conservative approach to the implementation of GDPR, such as Germany, Netherlands, Spain, Italy. Um, some have, have taken more of an approach of just adopting the GDPR as is without making any enhancements to it. Um, following up on your other question, which is about Brexit and how Brexit has been, is going to be impacted by GDPR or vice versa. Um, come to the end of December, when Brexit is fully executed, the UK will be considered an inadequate country. They do not have an adequacy rating from the EU. There are substantial um, issues associated with the UK Data Protection Act, even though the, the new one uh, does address GDPR, there are issues, especially with government surveillance and law enforcement, some of the same issues that, that we see with the US laws. Uh, and the UK will have to go through a review to obtain adequacy. And the commissioners uh, in the EU have stated that it's not automatic that the UK would be deemed adequate. And they will have to go through the same due diligence and vetting process as any other country that tries to obtain uh, adequacy. So um, I, I think that's something that many companies that operate in the UK are gonna have to look at and are they can't wait for the UK government to obtain adequacy. They are gonna have to comply with the GDPR. It's very, very interesting. And, and for, the, for the thousands of companies in the UK, what do you think might be the short-term impact of the UK not having- Well, I think that the short-term impact is going to be, as I just said, the companies that operate in the UK can't rely on what the government's going to do. They're going to have to step up and implement the GDPR as their baseline for their own internal privacy programs. I would never, ever tell my clients that you need to move out of the UK. That would be ludicrous, especially there's a lot of financial companies, as you know, that are headquartered in the UK that support uh, the entire uh, EU. But what I do tell them is that you can't rely on the UK Data Protection Act. You are going to have to implement the requirements under the GDPR. They're going to have to 
um, implement model contractual clauses or standard contractual clauses with their customers and with their uh, clients in the EU, they will have to look at the enhanced requirements of the standard contractual uh, uh, um, standard contractual clauses, I can't talk today, uh, to make sure that they're addressing the issues around government surveillance and some of the questionable issues uh, that are of major concern to the regulators. It'll be definitely very interesting to see how uh, the Brexit situation unfolds over the next few weeks. Um, so, Sheila, something that I always wondered, to be honest, is there are countries where uh, you have, uh, you know, they're very densely populated. And when it comes to GDPR, it's you would think it's nearly impossible to fully implement it, say, if someone's like just taking a picture in the, on the road, say, like in India. Would, what is that? Is that an actual problem or how do these countries tackle GDPR in that sense? It's certainly a, an issue, especially when you're talking about some of the um, countries, as you, as you said, that are that are more remote or smaller countries or, or areas where there may not be a high maturity level when it comes to data privacy. Um, you, you mentioned India. India, as a matter of fact, has really stepped up over the last couple of years and has implemented a data protection act that's moving them towards compliance. They certainly are not near where they need to be when it comes to GDPR, but they understand the importance of adhering to the law if they're processing the personal data of EU residents. Um, and as you know, e India is a is used quite a bit um, as a outsourcing center for many companies around the world. And so it's more of education where the multinational companies that operate in India uh, have to educate their teams in India about the law and what the requirements are. There's interaction with the regulators uh, around the world that they talk to each other, they have conferences. And so it's, um, it's inf information sharing, it's education, it's that maturity level that needs to be gained. But I, you know, I work all over the world and there are some jurisdictions that I operate in that still do not understand the implica implications of extraterritorial regulations, such as the GDPR, the Chinese Data Protection Act, the Japanese Data Protection Act, uh, and some of the new ones that are coming out. And there's almost like this tendency to bury your head and say, oh, that doesn't apply to us because we're a small jurisdiction. There's no, there's no ex exemption if you're a small jurisdiction. There's understanding and there's the ability to buy time to come into compliance, but you can't bury your head and ignore it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Uh, so uh, something that, again, I'm also wondering is, how do you uh, measure like compliance with global data privacy regulations, say, for a certain country, is there like a certain indicator that is followed uh, across the world? So that's a great question, and I always, get, I always get asked that one. And so there's there's no real. Um, so for instance, when you talk about security, you can talk about ISO standards or financial. You got your you have your SOC standards. There is no real approved standard for data protection at this point in time. We look at you know, GDPR as being one of the models of excellence. Um, as I mentioned, it's not the most restrictive. And so the way I, I um, work with my clients is that 
80% of privacy laws, 90% of privacy laws around the world are the same. It's the same principles about respecting that fundamental right to privacy, only collecting the minimal data you need in order to provide the services you're provide or manage the relationships you're trying to manage. Um, there's rules around only sharing the data with those that have a relevant need to know. Um, so the basic principles are the same. So the way that I guide clients so that they have what I consider to be a world-class global program is instead of addressing privacy piecemeal. So for instance, if I have a client that operates in the EU, in the UK, in the US, in Canada, and in Asia, rather than say, okay, we're gonna have a, a different privacy program in different jurisdictions of the world. We're basically gonna build one global privacy program based on the most restrictive law or the most restrictive law that they can tolerate because it really has to do with what your appetite for risk is and what your risk profile is. So the majority of my clients use GDPR as their foundation. And they build all of the policies, the procedures, the processes, the notifications around the GDPR. And then where they have to adjust, they'll adjust. And I'll give you another example of that. In most countries around the world, when you talk about marketing, the default is you're opted out until you explicitly opt in. And that's under GDPR, they have to opt in. It has to be a freely given opt-in. It can't be an assumed, it can't be forced, it can't be implied. And most countries, that's the standard. In the US, it's the complete opposite. In the US, even under CCPA, the default is you're opted in until you explicitly opt out. Now, obviously marketers hate data protection laws because it impacts what they're trying to do on a daily basis. But when I work with my clients, I said, it's a nightmare. To manage it differently around the world, and you say, Well, um, we're going to have it as a default of opting, you're automatically opted in until you explicitly opt out in the US, but we're going to treat the rest of the world differently. That's kind of hard to manage because how do you know that someone who's coming in from the US isn't an EU resident? We don't know that. I mean, I hold Irish citizenship and US citizenship, so how would you know that? If you're just going to, because I'm in the US, you're going to treat me differently than you were in the EU. I could sit there and say, wait a minute, I'm protected under the GDPR and I'm protected under the Irish Data Protection Act. So the really, the, the what I'd say the standard should be is look at the most restrictive law that you can tolerate. If it's GDPR, if it's South Korea, if it's Japan, build your entire privacy program on that and treat data the same around the world. Because why should you treat US data any different than you treat Irish data? That makes sense. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, I, I had another question. So I think when a lot of people think of data privacy and uh, GDPR and things, they often think of uh, the big tech companies maybe misappropriating their data to, to sell them stuff. Um, or do you think though that most, is, is it more common that, that breaches in, in data privacy are maybe accidental or just done in ignorance? So that's, a, that's another great question. And I always like to start by um, sort of explaining the difference between two things. When we talk about data breaches, when we talk about it under data protection laws, especially GDPR and the South Korea law and the, and the Japanese law, there's it's not only the traditional data breaches. So it's not just um, accidental authorization or unauthorized access and disclosure of information or someone hacked into your environment which is a traditional data breach that we think about. 
a data breach can also be a privacy violation, which would be an unlawful basis for processing data. Um, it could be an unlawful transfer of the data. It, it could be fraudulent policies and procedures. And, and oftentimes organizations don't think about those as being privacy violations or data breaches. They just think about the traditional. So in some cases, the, the data breaches where it's unauthorized access into your environment, many times those are gonna happen no matter what. You can have the best security in the world, you're still gonna have a potential for a data breach. If a hacker wants to get in, they're gonna get in somehow or another, they're gonna be able to figure it out. We do see a lot of accidental where maybe if you're in HR, you might accidentally mail an employee list to a provider and it was the wrong provider, or you might send an employee list during a performance evaluation to the wrong manager. And those things happen and we know they happen. They aren't, they aren't blatant and they aren't intended and you can fix those rather quickly. What concerns me the most is when you talk about the high tech companies, the companies that have policies and procedures out there that say, you know, we take data privacy very seriously. We're only using your data for the purpose for which you give it to us. We don't sell your data. We don't share it. When in effect, that's exactly what they're doing. So they have these policies and procedures that they're not complying with. That is a privacy violation and that is a data breach. Those are the ones that concern me more than the traditional data breaches because that's just blatant um, ignorance in some ways and blatant arrogance in other ways where as great as these companies are from a technology point of view and as as tremendous, um, the tremendous service they provide for innovation and to, you know, to, to better the capabilities of businesses, et cetera, privacy is not their strength and it's not something they take all that seriously. And so when I get on my high horse and I start preaching about privacy, I do want to, you know, get the message across to the tech companies that if you have a policy, you better follow it. And you don't tell your clients one thing and then find out you're doing something different. And I don't know if you're aware right now, there's a big initiative going on in the EU to move towards getting away from the dependency on U.S., um, technology providers, in particular cloud providers, and it's the GAIAX project, and it's being pushed by France and Germany. And it's really, even if the big providers have data centers in Europe, um, the push is to get away from them because they still are not complying with their obligations under data privacy laws. Well, we have a, a question here from, from the chat, um, which is, uh, quite related to what we were discussing now. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the specifics on it, but um, I'll just bring it up here. So Evan asks, uh, what was your take on Scrams 1, the complaint against Facebook Ireland Limited with the Irish Data Protection Commissioner? Oh, I'm very aware of that one. So um, Scrams 1 was the invalidation of the Privacy Shield framework. Uh, that was the agreement between the US and uh, the, the EU. Um, I think this question might be related to Schrems 2, which Schrems 2 was the invalidation of um, the Privacy Shield, which was the successor to Safe Harbor. And the complaint uh, that has been filed against uh, Facebook is because they relied on uh, first Safe Harbor and then Privacy Shield as their mechanism for transferring data. 
uh, but they weren't adhering to the requirements under the GDPR or Privacy Shield. And to be honest, I was never a fan of Safe Harbor or Privacy Shield. Um, I didn't see it as a very effective mechanism. And so obviously many US companies relied on it because there wasn't really enforcement of it uh, to a very, um, what I'd say, high degree. And so the complaint uh, against, uh, uh, against Facebook that Helen Dixon and her team in Ireland have, have filed is that even the standard contractual clauses that Facebook uses, Facebook is still not adhering to their obligations uh, under the GDPR and that the standard contractual clauses of the SECs aren't strong enough uh, to really force Facebook to change some of their practices um, and also the concern about Facebook sharing data with the U.S. government uh, for um, law enforcement purposes, uh, for safety and security, for terrorism purposes. And, and so, uh, as many people know, uh, the Irish commissioner has, for now, um, basically stopped any transfer of personal data um, from Facebook Ireland to the U.S., yeah, that's uh, that was a big deal. Uh, and uh, we have another question from Chloe there. I think we can put that up as well. So uh, Chloe says, hi, Sheila, what's the most interesting data protection project you've worked on to date? Oh, wow, Chloe, that is a question. Um, you're going to make me go back 40 years to think about all the projects. And um, wow, that's a great question. What was some of my most interesting ones? Uh, Oh, I have a number of them. That's a really good question. And it's actually stumped me. Um, I think probably one of the most interesting ones that I worked on was with a um, with a university. So it's a, a university that has um, satellite locations around the world. It's headquartered in, or headquartered, when you're a university, I guess you're not really headquartered, but their primary campus location is in the ANZ region, but they operate uh, in Europe, in other countries in Asia, as well as Canada, Canada in the US. And what was interesting from a university perspective is that they automatically would think about student data, but they never thought about the fact that when you're a student and you go to a university out of your country, you're still a resident of the country where your home is. And so the university thought that automatically because they were on campus at, in their jurisdiction, that they didn't have to comply with the privacy laws where the person resided. And, um, and so that was a really an interesting one to get the university to understand that no, the student does not give up the residency just because they've come to school in another country, they've maintained the residency in their home country. And plus, they didn't think about the fact that they're collecting alumni data. They have research data. They have faculty data. They have visiting professors' data. They have um, information on, you know, tr clinical trials that they run in their healthcare organization. So it was a fascinating project. Um, fabulous client, and definitely uh, kept me on my toes because there was a lot of areas that I had to work on. I did not think of that before. That's uh, how universities have to take into account the, the privacy regulations in, you know, the home countries of the students. That's that's very interesting. Well, and, and you think about they have, you know, their alumni base with their donors, and so they're soliciting, you know, donations. They want you to contribute once you graduated, 
So they have financial data and personal data of people from all over the world that graduated from the university and they never think about that. The university um, is a very complex organization when it comes to privacy. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we'll come back to the questions in the chat in a bit. Uh, so keep asking uh, on there. So something that I'd love to hear your take on is, so I'm not sure if you've watched it, but recently there was a documentary re released on Netflix called uh, The Social Dilemma. Uh, and so it's basically all around the ethics, uh, around the, is it ethical for, you know, the big tech companies, including Facebook, uh, Instagram, and so on. Uh, is it ethical for them to, you know, use the user's data in recommending posts and uh, as such, because it does get to a very uh, dangerous level and does recommend potentially dangerous material to certain people. So well, I'd love to hear your take on that, whether regardless if you watch the documentary or not. I haven't seen the documentary, but now you've piqued my interest and I certainly will watch it. Um, because I'm rarely ever home, I never have TV. I didn't even have Netflix until COVID hit. And then I had to go get a fire stick. So now I can get Netflix and all these things. Um, so I can start watching it. Um, I, I'm not sure what the concept is again. Maybe you can re-explain it. Is it, it's the social media companies are sharing content with individuals based on their profiles. Is that what you're, is that what it, the exactly. concept is? so like the whole time we're on the app, the whole goal of, you know, the, the company is to keep you on the app. And it does that in it doesn't matter if it's ethical or not, it just keeps recommending things that the basically the main goal is just to keep you scrolling. Okay. And it, it does that in ways that it could recommend stuff that could potentially say if someone is not feeling too well and instead of recommending say a therapist, it could recommend more content that could make the person feel even worse. So that's like an ethical question that was put uh, forward in the document. Okay, I'm definitely watching that documentary because already my um, I, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because I find that ethically, um, uh, no, I, I would never be in favor of that. I find it very disturbing. Um, I find it disturbing when I'm online and I get an ad on something I looked at yesterday because I feel it's an absolute infringement on my privacy. I don't, I'm not a big supporter, I can honestly say this, um, of social media companies getting into the space of healthcare or even um, um, psychological, you know, sort of sharing of ideas when they're trying to influence you. I, I, I don't like that. I think it's an abuse of your privacy. Um, so, you have to ask me that question after I watch it. I'm going to watch that documentary, but I can tell you from an ethic, just looking at it from ethics and in my passion for privacy, it, it would certainly not be something that I would support at all whatsoever. Yeah, so uh, definitely you should watch it. It's extremely interesting. Um, so I guess a, a kind of a related question. Uh, again, the privacy scandals with the big technology companies has been uh, or a reoccurring kind of headline in the news recently. Um, do you think that companies should probably, all major companies should reconsider their uh, uh, privacy in order to keep their corporate governance, governance, you know, at a good state so that, you know, they don't lose money? Would this be a, the main motive or would this be the best motive for companies to 
keep up to date with their privacy and not mess up that sector because obviously if their corporate governance drops, their share price drops and they're not doing so well. Yeah. Well, obviously, since I'm so passionate about privacy, I wish every company would take privacy a lot more seriously and I wish they would um, address privacy before they start talking about security um, and go back to my my example of it really doesn't do you any good to lock down data if you're not legally allowed to have it. And if you're not addressing your privacy obligations, then the best security is not going to help you. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of these technology companies that we've heard in the news lately that are, it's not a one-off where they're um, misusing data or violating uh, privacy laws. It's a, it's a continual situation. And part is because they are so big and so powerful and because the services they offer in some ways are very convenient. Um, they're excellent at what they do. Absolutely excellent. I, I would never say that these big companies um, from a technology point of view are, are, are terrible companies. They're not, they're, they're fantastic companies. But as I mentioned earlier, privacy is certainly not their model and it's not something that they embrace they see it in many ways as, as an impediment to doing business instead of looking at, at it as more of a competitive advantage. I look at privacy as a positive. And if I'm comparing two companies and one company takes privacy very seriously and understands it and understands the importance of putting the control of data back into my hands, allowing me to decide what they can and cannot have allowing me to decide what data can be shared and who it can be shared with. And, you know, I'm going to trust them a lot more than me that's telling me what's good for me and what data they have to have in order to provide their service to me. Uh, I, I'm going to go to the company that takes privacy seriously. It drives me crazy. And people have heard me speak before. When I ask a company about their privacy profile and their foundation and they start talking to me about security and encryption and tokenization and all this other stuff. That's not what I asked. And so I automatically get turned off because I that says to me right then and there, they don't understand privacy. They understand security. And that's great. But I don't care. I am assuming you're going to protect my data if I allow you to have it. Every company is going to be concerned about security. Why aren't you taking privacy as seriously as you're taking security? So I immediately will be turned off and we'll, we'll look for another um, organization to do business with if I if the organization I'm talking to either doesn't understand privacy or wants me to think they understand privacy, but all they're doing is talking to me about security. And that was a brilliant answer. So I, I have another question here from the chat from uh, Giancarlo, if I pronounce his name correctly. So he she, he's asking, um, with the increase in remote working, um, the perimeter of data protection exceeds the usual office perimeter. What does that mean for Well, data Giancarlo, hello, my friend. It's so great to hear from you. Obviously, we know each other. Um, I have had a tremendous upload in work because of COVID-19 and the whole remote working situation. There's a number of things that have to be um, considered. One is the technology around the video conferencing. And we all heard about the problems that Zoom had had initially uh, where they were abusing some of the privacy rights of individuals. Um, but more importantly, we need to think about what our companies are doing. So companies have ha had to very quickly 
adjust to the remote working environment. And that meant um, getting network speeds up, getting technology and, and devices out to their employees as soon as possible. Um, but they really didn't, didn't think about the privacy aspects. So they were getting all kinds of personal information so that they could figure out, you know, where people live to get them devices. And they were um, getting phone numbers and there was being shared with their health organizations. It was being shared with their security people. It was be being shared with facilities. And they didn't stop and think about, okay, wait a minute, what data do we need in order to get people set up remotely? What's the minimal amount we need? What kind of technology do we need to use? Do people have to participate in video conferencing or can they just do uh, conference calls? Because um, I know you can't see me and I'm not doing truly a technology issue. People are very uncomfortable with the whole video conferencing. And one area that is a concern is when um, people are recording video conferences from home. If you think about it, when you're in the office, we don't record our meetings when we're in an office. If we're sitting in a conference room, we're not recording that meeting. So why are we recording a meeting if we're taking it from home? Because when you're doing the video recording, you don't know, is, is your child walking behind you? Do you have, um, is, are other people in your home exposed to the video? Is there personal information uh, in the background that you wouldn't want people to see? Um, are people taking snapshots of the video? So we quickly had to develop a set of rules around privacy in a COVID world. Um, even things like the contact tracing that organizations wanted to do. I found that um, exceedingly intrusive because I'm smart enough to figure out that if I went somewhere and someone had COVID, I'm smart enough to figure out that I could have been exposed. I don't need somebody telling me I was exposed. Uh, and the other thing too is when, you know, this is kind of getting off of what Giancarlo asked a little bit, but it fits into the COVID. Um, when things started to reopen and not really offices, but for instance, my dentist reopened. So I went to the dentist and when I walked in, you have to fill out the form. Have you been near anyone who's had COVID? Well, you answer no, but how do you know? I mean, if they're asymptomatic, you don't really know, but you put no. And then they take your temperature and they write it down. And my thing was, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Why are you documenting this? You don't need to document what my temperature was. You just need to know when you take my temperature that I'm safe to come into the building. You don't need to record it. That's a violation of privacy. And filling out this form where you want me to know where I've been in the last 10 days is an absolute violation of privacy. So I, I think we, we reacted to COVID because we had to. Um, and that made sense at the beginning. But I think as we've been into this for six or seven months now, we have the time to start thinking about, wait, let's be smart about this from a privacy perspective. What data are we collecting? What are we doing with it? Do we really need it? Why are we recording it, um, et cetera. So that was a very long-winded question to uh, Giancarlo, or answer to Giancarlo's question. Thank you, it was a fantastic answer. Um, so I, I have another, maybe slightly un unrelated question. So you worked in a, a number of different corporations, one of them being Oracle, um, maybe about 20 years ago. How do you think the sense of data privacy has changed since that time? Do you think it's much more of a focus now? Um, you're aging me, but of course I did say I've been, I've been doing this for 40 years, but I started at the age of five, I forgot to mention that. Um, 
Oh, data protection and data privacy has certainly changed um, over the years. I mean, as when I got into it all those years ago, people really didn't care. Um, it was even prior to the directive, the EU directive being in place of 1995. Um, there's the way it's changing is there's more of an awareness, but I think the change is driven more by technological changes that have forced the need to address privacy at a greater level because the greater the technology, the more data we can collect and the more we can manipulate that data for better results. Um, we can do more analysis, we can do more monitoring and profiling, and that has certainly raised the level of concern around privacy. Um, and, and each year it changes. It, each year as more and more technology um, comes out and we have more advancements like artificial intelligence and machine learning and you, know, you name it, new, new advances, it all impacts personal data. So, you know, 20 years ago, I'd walk into a room and people go, oh, privacy, and they'd walk out. Now they sit there, they might roll their eyes, but they at least sit there and understand this is an issue that they have to address. Sam, I think we can take a question from the chat just quickly there. So can we can take Oshin's question there. So. Uh, he is asking, are there any financial subsidies to help companies get their data information affairs in order and in compliance? Oh, financial subsidiaries. Um, to be honest, not that I know of. And the only thing that comes to mind, but it's not a subsidiary, is what I mentioned earlier about Truata, um, which is the brainchild of MasterCard. Obviously, that's a financial institution. Um, and the area that Tirada addresses is the whole de-identification and use of anonymous data uh, in order to do modeling and, and, and um, benchmarking and, and profiling and being able to um, address, you know, uh, loyalty programs and customer concerns, et cetera. But I don't, I'm not aware of any financial subsidiaries that um, deal with compliance. Uh, we have another question here from uh, from Aoife. Um, Aoife asks, what can individual users do to protect their data and information? Is, is there anything they can do? Aoife, that's a great question. And my the answer I always give for that one is you have to learn how to say no. And you have to learn how to ask questions. So, and what I mean by that is just because an organization is asking you for your data doesn't mean they have the right to have it. And you, it, it's perfectly okay to say, why do you need that? And what are you gonna do with it? Um, by law, you don't have to give up information if you don't want to, unless there is a legal requirement to have it. So for instance, in an employment situation, your employer obviously needs um, your, your government ID, whether it's your national identification number, whether it's your social security number, or your social insurance number, they have a legal obligation to have that in order to manage the relationship with you. They have a right to um, bank details because obviously you want to get paid. And so they have to, they do direct deposit. But even when it comes to direct deposit um, or electronic transfer, you even have the right to say no to that because the way the regulators look at it is that you can always cut a check. You can always write a check to an individual rather than have access to their data. So it's incumbent on every individual to question why organizations are asking for certain data. What is the lawful basis for needing that data? What are they gonna do with it? 
who's going to have access to it, etc. So you really don't expect organizations to share that with you unless they are really good about privacy and they take it very, very seriously, which hopefully those are my clients. Um, but you're going to have to be more proactive about asking the questions and don't give away information, um, especially if you use social media. You know, I tell people social media is great. It's a great way to, you know, keep in touch with people and to, to search for information, but nothing is private. So, you know, I'm always talking to my nieces and nephews about you, you keep telling me that your, your um, profile is private, but you don't realize that your friends' friends have access to their data, which means your data is not private. Um, and and nothing is nothing is gone forever. So even if we talk about the right to, to um, destruction or right to erasure, no data is ever gone forever. So be careful about what you're sharing and what you're posting, because even though a company may say we delete your data, it's never deleted because it's backed up somewhere in some system that you may not even be aware of. So um, long story short, ask questions, say no, and understand your rights. Okay, so we might just ask one more question and then we'll, we'll wrap up. So data privacy um, as, as an industry is obviously growing massively over, over the past couple of years as we've discussed. How would you advise someone who wants to get into GDPR, who wants to get into data privacy? How, how do they go about doing that? Maybe from an education standpoint or, or where do they go to, to look for experience to get into that type of role? So that's a great question because obviously the role of the DPO has become a role that is sort of, um, I hate to use the phrase, but sort of the cool role right now. Um, it's sort of a catch-22. Uh, I have an issue with the number of people that have jumped on the, the, the data protection officer bandwagon, sort of the DPO bandwagon, where they take a two-day course and then they take a test and all of a sudden they're a certified DPO. And, you know, that's great, but that's not, you can't learn to be a DPO through a, one course. Um, it just doesn't happen. And as a result, we've seen a lot of DPOs out there that don't have experience or expertise or even understand the law, especially people that come from more of a technology background. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, if you're, if you're a DPO, you can't sit in the technology organization or the IT organization, it's a conflict of interest. So what, I would, what I'd advise is you know, um, find a university that offers a data protection a curriculum, not a one-day certification course, not a two-day certification course um, through an association. You, you really need to find a university that, that offers a full curriculum, uh, whether it's a year-long program. Um, you Also, I would recommend finding a mentor that understands privacy law, understands in, and has worked in that area that can help guide you, give advice. Um, you can bounce ideas off, even help you with your papers you write during your, your um, education program. Be careful about the programs that you, um, you look into because a lot of them are more technology driven than they are privacy driven. So they're, they're more around cybersecurity, um, which is very important. Don't get but if you want to be a data protection officer, you need to understand, you don't have to be an attorney, but you need to understand the law and how the law is written. And you need to understand risk management and you need to understand um, data and how important that data is. Um, 
So do reading. I'd advise, you know, reading um, the um, articles that are put out by the regulators. Um, you know, I, I would even offer, I love mentoring people. I, if you have questions, you're always free to reach out to me. I publish articles. Um, it's, it, put yourself out there, um, ask questions, but really, if you truly want to be a DPO, I'd say look into um, a curriculum at a university or a college, um, as opposed to an association that is a two-day course. Uh, I hope that answered the question. That's perfect. Sheila, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, we might just wrap up there. And before, before we go, I just uh, encourage everyone to go to datasoc.co and uh, keep an eye out for next Thursday. We have an event coming up with Dr. Kevin Cunningham. He's the managing director of Ireland Thinks. Um, he's going to run a workshop on, um, on elections and data analytics, which is obviously very relevant right now with the uh, American election coming up. So once again, Sheila, thank you so, so much for coming on. It was a really, really interesting talk. Very happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I completely enjoyed it. And hopefully I didn't knock everyone's ear off like I usually do. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we'll, uh, we'll end up there. Thanks a lot. Take care.